0: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. This week, we're talking about adaptation with writer Walter Kern, who's had a number of his books adapted into films and who himself adapted into being the
1: friend of a guy who turned out to be a complete charlatan. So I drove 2,000 miles in a truck with a crippled dog, not knowing he was an imposter, not knowing he was a serial killer, which he was.
0: Plus, comedian Ron Funches, who moved into his aunt's house in L.A. to pursue his comedy dreams, only to learn his aunt's housekeeper was not having it.
2: The hours and the like schedule of a comedian are also very similar to what looks like a drug dealer to like an 80-year-old Hispanic lady. <laughs> so she was pretty sure I was like running drugs. <laughs> All that,
0: plus we have got music from the Secret Sisters. We've got a great show for you, so let's get to it. And head over to the stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. Our theme is adaptation. How do we grow and evolve as the circumstances of life sort of change around us? We also have a guest, Walter Kern, who's an amazing writer who wrote a book called Up in the Air uh, that was adapted into a film called Up in the Air starring George Clooney. And in that movie... George, we have one George Clooney fan. <laughs> He's going to be bummed when he hears that. In the movie, uh, George Clooney plays a guy who is obsessed with accumulating frequent flyer miles. He's trying to get to one million frequent flyer miles, and he basically lives his life on airplanes. And Walter's book writes really beautifully about how Lonely and isolating that existence can be for somebody to just be one of those kind of road warriors. And as I was rereading the book this week, it occurred to me that without meaning to, I have completely become that guy. And I don't mean George Clooney, I wish. I have become like the character in Walter Kern's book. Last year, I flew just under 200,000 miles for various work things. You applaud now, but let me put it in different terms. That is roughly eight times around planet Earth, which unless you're a crew member on the International Space Station, is too many times around Earth in one year for a person. And I think because of all of this intense work travel I've been doing as kind of a a coping mechanism, I have streamlined and maximized every single second of my travel experience from when I leave the front door of my house. I know which security line to go through. I never check bags. I have TSA pre-clearance, so I don't have to take my laptop out, I don't have to take my shoes off. I have all of the airline apps. I even have an app that tells me based on the actual plane that I'm gonna be on where the good seats are. And I'm not proud to admit this, but I am that sad, annoying person who smugly boards the airplane before you because of my elite status. I still have to board after parents with young children and active-duty military, but I'm trying to find a loophole because that doesn't seem fair to me. I earned these smiles. I want to use them. If it sounds at all like I'm trying to brag about any of this stuff. I promise you, I am not, because it turns out it's actually not the greatest way to live. I think when this is most apparent to me is when I'm in one of these uh, like private airplane airline lounges where they give you free snacks and stuff, and I see all of these just power travelers, and they have these um, like their luggage tags show what their elite status is. And they're all just kind of like sadly, glumly looking into laptop computers. And I think it's because all of these people, and me included, realize that we have mastered this universe, but it is not where we want to be, right? Like, as we are accumulating status with the airlines and with the hotels and the rental cars, we are probably losing status with the people that actually matter, our families, our loved ones, And life is really weird because you don't even realize it, but you're making decisions all the time that are kind of funneling you and channeling you into what becomes your real life. And one day you're on a rental car shuttle like I was, and you get the app for the rental car company out, and you realize that you have achieved the rental car status, and this is a real thing, you have achieved the rental car status of wizard, But you also realize that if you had an app for your family life, you would not have achieved the status of wizard yet. So I'm trying to, in my own life, think about how I can change some of these things. I will tell you though, that being said, it isn't all bad. There are some moments of true joy. I had one today, coming to do the show. I had a connecting flight. The flight I came in on was running late. So when I got off the plane, I realized, I had three minutes to make it across the airport to where my other flight was and I faced one of the toughest decisions you have to make in an airport which is, do I run for the flight I'm trying to catch? Maybe that's not a hard decision for you, for me it is, I get very embarrassed running for a flight, I don't like it, I feel like it's a really good way to let a bunch of strangers know that you're not managing your life well. Like, nobody has ever looked cool running through an airport since O.J. Simpson did those Hertz ads. And that was the 80s. There was a lot we didn't know about him. Not a good look on anyone. So I kind of walk-jogged, tried to maintain a little dignity, and I got to the gate, and the reader board sign said, boarding door has closed. Right? Even if you don't fly a lot, you know that when the boarding door is closed, nothing, not even an act of Congress, is gonna open it. I don't know what the rules are on that or why it's that way. I know, though, that the airlines treat the boarding door, once it's closed, like the plane is the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you open it, someone's face is getting melted off. So they're very strict about it. I get to the gate, I look at the thing, I'm kinda bummed out but I'm just like, well, that's life, this has happened before. And the gate agent looks at me and there was some kind of twinkle of recognition in her eyes, it was like game, recognized game. And she said, what's your name? And I said, Burbank. And she looked up at the sign, she looked back at me, looked at the sign and then she said the three most beautiful words I have heard in a long time. She said, run for it. (laughs) And I did, I ran for the plane it was the kind of plane where you have to go outside on the runway to get to it, so you feel like the Beatles or Nixon. <laughs> and the, the guy is like starting to put the like step door up, and I'm yelling, but it's really loud because there's a lot of other planes. And then finally he sees me when it's about halfway up, and he goes, okay, and he like lets it back down. And I get on the thank you. I get on the... <laughs> I get on the plane, and I don't know if they radioed ahead or whatever, but the flight attendant says, Welcome aboard, Mr. Burbank. And I go, I sit down, and they give me my free drink, and the thought that goes through my mind is, Who needs family? So much better. So that's how I got here. Let's find out about your first guest. What do you say? As I've already mentioned, Walter Kern wrote the book Up in the Air, which was adapted into the film of the same name. His most recent book is Blood Will Out, which is an amazing true story of a friendship he had that was built on a complete lie. He's a columnist for Harper's and also he co-hosts the great podcast for writers called Writerly. Please welcome Walter Kern to LiveWire. Walter Kern, welcome to LiveWire.
1: Great to be here.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your book, uh, Up in the Air. I know that it was very well-received when it came out, and then 9-11 happened?
1: Yeah, it it was up almost at the top of the bestseller list. Um, And then one month later, as it was climbing, 9-11 happened. And I'd gotten a movie deal, and a Hollywood executive said, no one's ever going to fly again, and nobody's ever going to watch a movie about flying again. So, sorry, kid. Um, but, you know, Up in the Air was a book that, uh, you know, your, your theme is adaptation, that came out of my feeling that people were, you know, losing their ability to live in one place anymore. And I, and I, I thought that it had reached a kind of crisis stage, but apparently it's gone on and gotten worse as your uh, monologue uh, yes. proved.
0: Yes. Are you, have you considered writing Up in the Air 2,
1: Even Upper, starring Luke Burbank? <laughs> because I I got a lot of notes for you. Well, you know, uh, somebody told me, I know that you think you have high status and 200,000 is a lot, but... um, (laughs) I'm getting getting mileage shamed. (laughs) Yeah. But the director of Up in the Air, Jason Reitman, told me that once he had a 747 held for him at Tokyo Airport because his status was that high. Whoa. So, until you get there, baby. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's fine. My goal, my goal is actually not to get there, yeah, if possible. Really? Well, it was a beautiful film. It was nominated for many an Academy Award, but also I know that it was adapted from your book. Uh, you wrote a version of the screenplay, but other people also uh, pitched in. It sounds like almost everybody in Hollywood had took a whack at it at some point. What is it like for you when you, you work hard on a book and you create these specific characters, things are happening for a reason, and then someone else makes it George Clooney and puts it on the big screen?
1: Well, you know, when I found out that George Clooney was, was starring in it, I was lying in bed with a girl I was thinking of breaking up with. And it was early in... It was early in the cell phone era. And she was looking, she was, she was looking on her cell phone after a kind of intimate moment. And I thought, gosh, that's so rude. I mean, now it happens all the time. So I, tur- I, I turned on my cell phone and I had an email that said, George Clooney has just... Oh, agreed to star in Up in the Air. So I turned to her and I said, hey, guess what? I don't know what you're reading, but what I'm reading is that George Clooney is going to basically play me in an upcoming Hollywood movie. Then I put my pants on and got out of there. Wow. That's a serious mic drop. We have Walter Kern here. This
0: is live wire radio from PRI. Walter's latest book is "Blood Will Out." You can also hear him on the writerly podcast, which I enjoy greatly, uh, not as a person who writes, but as a person who dreams of writing. Um, one of the things that you talk about as a writer is that on that show is that you want to not just tell a story, but you want to take your vitality as a human and transfer
1: that to the reader. How it's like do being you- a reverse vampire. <laughs> yeah. I want, to, I want to contribute my life force to my victims. How do you do that? How do you do that? Yeah. Um, As a writer,
0: how do you transfer your, your vitality to somebody who's reading your stuff?
1: Well, I'm going to be very earnest in this answer because I take writing very seriously. Um, you sit at the desk and you pour every bit of passion, imagination, hope, um, fear you can, into that sentence. Every sentence. And the sweat and the toil that no one ever sees uh, that goes on, you know, in the dark is magically transferred to the reader when they lie in the dark reading that page. And that's what it's all about. It, It really is a form of communication in which you don't have to be in the same room as the person, you know. But it's that important to me. Are you able to tell if what you're writing might have
0: that effect on somebody?
1: Uh, I have no idea. You know, uh, here, here you know whether you've told a good joke um, or, you know, made somebody sad. You hear, Aww. Uh You can only be your own audience when you're writing and you can only guess at the effect you're having and sometimes you're completely wrong. I thought Up in the Air was a funny book and most of the people who read it thought like you that it was kind of depressing and melancholy. Well, I thought it was accurate, which in
0: my mind is different than something that sets out to be depressing or melancholy. I just, it didn't sugarcoat
1: anything. Anything that's accurate about human beings is funny. Um, uh, But, uh, yeah, I I didn't sugarcoat it, but I thought that the lifestyle of the so-called, you know, uh, road warrior was maybe on its way out, that people were going to see reason and stop living in this, you know, terrible, hectic way, but it's only gotten... Ten times worse.
0: I know you you also travel extensively for work but it seems like you've gotten some kind of a system going because I understand that you split your time between Los Angeles and Livingston, Montana. Yes, I do. What's a
1: day in Livingston, Montana like for you? Well, the Sun comes up, you know at about 630 and a dog barks and you hear a, you know a Rooster crow out on the horizon and then you know a, about a year goes by until lunchtime <laughs> Um you see a couple of familiar faces, you exchange jokes that you've told a thousand times, then you go back and to the post office and make some rounds and slowly, slowly, the sun declines and uh, you go back to bed. Nothing happens at all. Is that the idea? That, the idea is to do a lot of writing. The idea is to get your driver's license renewed in like 10 minutes, which takes, you know, 24.
0: It's worth flying to Montana it, to it, renew it, your it, driver's exactly. license. <laughs> Are you
1: still reading a chapter of Moby Dick every day, or did you get through that project? I finished that project. It was one of the most doable resolutions I've ever, you know, accomplished, yeah.
0: What was
1: the, what was the, the reason behind reading a chapter of Moby Dick every day? I didn't want to quit smoking, um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I wanted, some, I wanted to tweet out some sort of a resolution that made me seem like a, a guy who was up for 2017. It was easy it was easy not to be up for 2017. Yeah. Um, uh, no, actually I read it because I read it as a sort of historian. I wanted to read about a madman in charge of a great ship, who uh, <laughs> who, who is pursuing a perhaps non-existent creature of the deep. Uh, I'm not following you, Walter. Yeah, Karen. I know, I know. <laughs> We, we have Walter Kern
0: here, uh, his latest book is Blood Will Out, which um, is, is a quite incredible true story from your life. Can you tell me how you met this guy,
1: Clark Rockefeller? 1998, Livingston, Montana. Does that not set a scene? Um, <laughs> and uh, my wife at the time, my second wife, is head of the uh, local Humane Society. They get a call. A dog that they have, a crippled dog that's in a wheelchair that was shot and run over, has uh, been put out on the internet for adoption. And a man from New York City named Clark Rockefeller has called and said, I'd love to adopt this dog, but I can't get it to New York. Uh, My private jet is in China with my wife, and I don't drive a car. And so my wife comes home to me with this problem and says, how do we get Clark Rockefeller this Gordon Setter all the way from Montana? And I said, I'll drive it. So I drove 2,000 miles in a truck with a crippled dog to uh, gratify an invisible Rockefeller at the other end and uh, met the guy. He turned out to be one of the greatest eccentrics I've ever met um, and became friends with him for 10 years, not knowing he was an imposter, not knowing he was a serial killer, I mean, you know, which he was. What was his real name? His real name was Christian Karl Gerhardt's writer. He was a, a German foreign exchange student who'd come over to Connecticut at 17, sat, at the couch, sat on the couch of his host family's living room watching Gilligan's Island, and saw the millionaire, Thurston Howell III, and said, I wanna be that guy. So he practiced his voice, and he set himself up as an American sort of blue blood aristocrat, and uh, moved out to California, Murdered a couple of people, chopped them up, buried them in a yard, Um, and... uh, Classic Thurston Howell. Yeah, yeah. uh, You know, there wasn't room on Gilligan's Island for a hidden grave, but um, um, they were all up in each other's faces there. But uh, in in any case, you know, at that point, he was a British uh, baronet. Uh, He was passing himself off as that then he became the cousin of Cameron Crowe the movie director for some reason weirdly specific lie Yeah Well, what's weird is that he kept his aliases kept the same initials so he could use his monogrammed shirts over and over so CC was his chosen set of initials, which I think he chose because it stands for carbon copy Um, and he did not have a self he was uh, sort of bad Xerox of about a thousand different selves and I being a trained journalist and writer couldn't tell at all
0: um, That's what is so fascinating about this is that you're obviously an observant person What was it like being around this guy for all those years? I mean did it did it all seem like it made
1: sense the stuff he was saying well, you see I, I wanted to write this book for all victims of con artists and, you know, lovers who didn't tell the truth and partners who, you know, emptied the checking account. Because being a victim of a, you know, a a fraud, as we all know right now in America, um, (laughs) involves some (laughs) guilt on your part, some complicity on your part. And uh, you know, I'd gone out to Princeton from a little Minnesota town and hadn't been treated very well. And the prospect of being accepted by a Rockefeller was so intoxicating that I was willing to overlook many many strange and inconsistent uh, facts in his life you know what finally uh, it sort of tipped everybody off about this guy well he, he, he uh, kidnapped his daughter uh, his seven-year-old daughter after a custody hearing in, in, in um, Boston uh, he'd lost custody of her and then it went out throughout the country a sort of, you know, amber alert that he was on the run. And then the Rockefellers came out and said, this guy's not a Rockefeller, we've never heard of him. At which point I said, those Rockefellers, how cowardly, one of their own... (laughs) I I, I turned to my girlfriend at the time and said, you know, they throw you under the bus the minute you do something, you know, a little bit colorful. But then they found out that he was the same guy who'd been living in Pasadena and, you know, killed these people and so on. And I looked at myself and I said, you know, you shouldn't be allowed outside, Walter. Uh, You know, don't, don't make your own friends. Let your, you know, parents make your friends for you. At least run them through APHIS.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Seven people who watch Forensic Files got that joke and I salute you. We have Walter Kern here. His latest book is Blood Will Out. Um, has that experience of, of, of being friends with somebody who turned out to be uh, leading such a double life, has that actually affected your level of trust
1: with other people that you, that you meet, uh, that you have met going forward? Absolutely. I met this guy in 1998, which was just when Google started. Everybody always says, why didn't you Google him? And I was like, there wasn't Google. Um, But as the world has progressed... Why didn't you Alta Vista him? uh, Or Ask Jeeves him. Um,
0: Talk about another fake blue blood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right,
1: Jeeves. (laughs) Ask Jeeves. (laughs) So even once Google came around, I didn't Google him because I grew up in Minnesota and it wasn't polite to ask questions. Mm. Um, But... but, uh, No, I don't trust anybody, especially now, no. Um, Once I learned that there were people on Twitter and Facebook that weren't real, I I went into my shell for about 18 months. Yeah,
0: And I've been to the internet lately. I think you want to stay in that shell, Walter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As long as possible. Walter Kern, everybody. All right, Walter, you have had the experience of having a couple of your books, actually, but including your book Up in the Air, adapted into a movie. And if we understand right, when that played in other countries, the name of Up in the Air was pretty much Up in the Air. Yes. But that doesn't always happen, by the way. A lot of times when films uh, go overseas, they change the name of the film so that it seems more relevant to the folks who are living in whatever country they might be in. And we thought that we would run a little quiz on you, which Mm -hmm. is we're gonna give you the names of American films as they played in other countries. And your job, Walter Kern, is to try to figure out what the original American title of the film was. It's a little game we're calling Lost in Translation. Here's the first one. This is an American movie that was named this in another country. What was the original movie? I will marry a prostitute to save money. Pretty woman. 100% pretty woman. <laughs> nice. You're a one for one. How does he save money though? I don't remember. I'm not 100% sure. Here's one. He's a ghost. Ghost. Too easy. Um, that was, do you want to you keep guessing? He's a ghost. He's a ghost! Mm, I I don't know. I don't know. That was the name of the movie The Sixth Sense when it played in China. (laughs) Oh, no!
1: That's why it bombed in China. (laughs) They gave away the ending in the title.
0: There was a movie, an American film, that in Germany was distributed under the name Urban Neurotic. Wow.
1: Urban neurotic. Yeah, that could be anything. I'm gonna say... um, Well, it could have been that movie, Her, where uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays the guy in love with his phone. Um, I'm gonna say it was a Woody Allen movie. You are right. Yeah. uh, Annie Hall. You're absolutely right. It was Annie Hall.
0: (laughs) How about, if you leave me, I delete you. This was in Italy. There was a film. If you leave me, I delete you. You, I, you've got mail. Um, <laughs>
1: uh, if I leave you, I, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You're good, Kern. You're very good. That's exactly what it was.
0: Okay. Last one. Yeah. There was a movie released in Israel that was titled,
1: Love is in the Sky. Wow. Uh, Moonlighting. Not, not moon. No, what's the one where Cher
3: is You're thinking love?
1: Moonstruck. Moonstruck. Which it isn't. It's not Moonstruck? No, but that's actually a very good guess. 2001,
0: A Space Odyssey? No. A little, a little, a little newer than 2001. More about things that happen in the sky, things that are more aerially exciting, a movie that also featured an extremely homoerotic volleyball scene. I'm not allowed to watch those, which one? Which, 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 uh... We are
1: talking about Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah. Love is in the sky. Are they referring to Val Kilmer and and, and Tom Cruise in terms of love Uh, or what? It's
0: uh, it's a mystery to us. We just know that in Israel, if you saw Top Gun, you actually saw a movie called Love is in the Sky. Wow, wow. Incredible stuff. Walter Kern, ladies and gentlemen, check out the Writerly Podcast and Blood Will Out. Hey, you probably heard me talking about our spring member drive that we were running. And guess what? We got there, people. In fact, we exceeded our goal. We got to $20,000 this spring, which was a record for us. And we just have to thank all of you, the LiveWire listeners. It was so humbling, your outpouring of support. So thank you so much. We want to give a special thanks this episode to some of our members of the League of Extraordinary Listeners. Of course, I'm talking about Mark and Jenna Schofer of Lake Oswego, Oregon, and David and Andrea Tenenbaum of Denver, Colorado. Huge thanks to Mark, Jenna, David, and Andrea. We appreciate it. You guys are the best. Hey, another quick note. This podcast feed uh, is going to take a couple of weeks off, but do not worry. We're going to be back on July 2nd with a brand new episode of LiveWire featuring an interview with Amanda Knox, probably remember her from the news a few years ago. She's going to talk to us about a lot of things, including how she's still trying to work through mentally her four years in an Italian prison when she was wrongfully convicted of murder.
2: Years later, I'm still sort of picking apart where I've gone numb, and I'm like touching it and trying to bring feeling back.
0: Plus, I'm going to talk to Justin Simeon, the creator of the hit movie Dear White People and the Netflix series Dear White People on how he always seems to end up talking about race. But that's okay.
2: If you're not part of the conversation about it, then you're left out of the conversation. And that, for us,
0: can sometimes be fatal. So that episode of LiveWire is going to hit your pod feed on July 2nd. We're very excited to share it with you. So keep an ear out for that. Okay, now back to LiveWire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. Our next guest moved to Salem, Oregon when he was 13. And then in his 20s became one of the most unique voices in the stand-up comedy world from right here in Portland, Oregon. Then he moved to LA and had to adapt to being a pretty famous TV dude, thanks to his appearances on At Midnight, and Kroll Show, and Chelsea Lately, and starring on the NBC show Undateable. This summer, his Funch-a-mania tour will be all over the country. Please welcome the one, the only, Ron Funches to Livewire.
2: Uh, I haven't been here in a while. Um, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I built it myself. Uh, it's a rough place. It's a rough place to grow up in. Especially if you're the only brother on the block that's into bumping Atlantis Morrison. <laughs> so you ought to know. I moved to Oregon. <laughs> Oregon is beautiful. I love it. It is also kind of dangerous. I don't know if you had heard, uh, but it is very dangerous place. It has its own gangs, has its own horrible things. I didn't know it's, but it's got its own positives. It's a little different. It's a lot like Chicago with subtle differences. <laughs> like Chicago was like, oh, it's a gang member. Uh, oh my God, it's a crackhead. In Oregon, it was like, oh snap, the blackberries are in season. <laughs> mm. This is a delicious situation, I'm in. <laughs> I love rap music. My favorite type is ignorant rap music. <laughs> The dumber, the better. Like, if you could rhyme titties... with titties... Oh, I'll buy your whole collection. Just keep it coming, Juicy J. Y'all love the juice, man? (laughs) I love Juicy J. If you don't know who that is, let me alleviate your ignorance. Juicy J is a 40 year old rapper, which in itself is a major accomplishment, from Memphis, Tennessee. And all he raps about is smoking weed, drinking codeine, probably without a prescription, and having sex with college girls and he's won an Oscar. Now think of all that you've accomplished. (laughs) Juicy J once gave out a $50,000 college scholarship to the girl who could twerk the best. (laughs) Juicy J is the black Willy Wonka. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot of positive things in my life, but there's some negatives. I've seen some negative things recently. I saw a real horrible thing. I saw a gentleman on a bus with a tattoo on his neck that just read Linda. (laughs) That guy hates Linda. (laughs) Or, he has to remind himself, to be intimate with Linda. Either way, Linda could do better. Oh, okay. Oh, oh you know Linda? Thank you guys for your time. Ron Funches! Ron, welcome Thank to Livewire. Thank you for having me again. I've been here before. Uh,
0: welcome back to Portland, man. You, Thank you. you. You kind of, would you say that you, you started your
2: comedy career here? Definitely. I think anybody could say that because that's what happened for sure. <laughs> did, that, like, did
0: that impact your comedy early? Just being in Portland, being around whatever was going on in Portland in the day?
2: Uh, I think, especially for me, it was it was a great scene just because we, well, we had a few people to look up to like Dwight Slade and Susan Rice, but no one really had this blueprint of how to be successful in comedy. So you, huh. <laughs> that applies no to no one a... was successful. Uh, <laughs> And so you kind of just were able to just go at your own pace and, and discover your own voice and, and do what you want to do. And I think that was very invaluable for me. So I didn't, I, would stop me from sounding like a lot of other comedians.
0: Did you, the, the, the your voice up on stage, the kind of jokes that, that you make, did you have that like right away when you were open micing and stuff or did you kind of develop your voice over time?
2: No, I kind of, you know, I think just like in life and as you get older with anything, it's more you experience, you kind of give yourself more permission to be yourself. And I was trying at first to be what I thought what a comedian should be. So I would come out there and be like, oh, who's what's going on tonight? Who's got a birthday? Who's drinking? And I'm like, I'm allergic to alcohol. I don't give a who's drinking at all. <laughs> so I had to learn to just like, let myself be myself and just be like, these are my jokes. If you like them, great. If you don't, I got another one coming around the bend. So hope you like that one or you can leave, I guess. It seems like that
0: would be a tough thing to do as a, as a kind of a comedian starting out just because people get into comedy to hear the audience laugh. A lot of people who do comedy are very, um, I don't want to say needy, but it's just- That's a good word for it. <laughs> But so you, you weren't that way? You were okay with the audience getting what you were doing or not getting it?
2: No, I was still needy. I still <laughs> am needy. What do you mean? I still want people to like me, but it, at the end of the day, I just knew that I had to like me and I had to like what I was doing. And so if I was making myself laugh and enjoying it, then it's kind of like, well, I, I'm assuming people will get on board eventually, because I think that's probably what people like about me is that I'm having fun, so I couldn't go out there and tell like, jokes I didn't care about you know Um, you moved to uh, Los Angeles thank
0: you so much um uh, what was it like when you moved to LA from Portland Oregon it
2: was terrifying it's scary there it's just scary in general to leave a place where you're like you're comfortable and, and you can get a lot of stage time and people were liking me but I knew that like just what, you know, whatever industry you're in, you have to go to where those jobs are. And so I was like, you either have to, if I'm gonna be like, oh, I wanna be a national comedian, I have to go to California or New York. And I like California a lot better. So I swear I went, um, but it was terrifying. I slept in, I lived at my aunt's house for like three weeks until her housekeeper kicked me out. And <laughs> Wait, is this the plot of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? I think it is. It was like a turf war, she was like, because my aunt didn't really stay there and my cousins didn't stay there and she was like, nah, I'm not going to let a new, now we got this house to ourselves. So we The gonna- housekeeper was not down with you being Mm-mm, there. No, because I found out like if, if you're, the hours and the like schedule of a comedian are also very similar to what looks like a drug dealer to like an 80 year old Hispanic lady. <laughs> So she was pretty sure I was, like, running drugs.
0: (laughs) Um, How did your uh, family respond when you were getting on TV a lot and then you're starring in this NBC sitcom? Mm -hmm. And you're, like, kind of getting to be, like, a legit famous person who people recognize. Oh,
2: thank you so much. How did your...
0: How did like how did your family and friends react to like seeing you on, on national TV all the time?
2: Oh, uh, they didn't really care. Like my mom and stuff like my mom only cares about if it's like shows that she actually watches, you know? <laughs> she was like, I don't watch powerless dateable. She's like, tell me when you on blackish. And then I was, and then she was happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> That is the most mom story of all time, right? Like, yeah. up until about a year ago, my mom would ask if I'm still DJing. Because <laughs> none of the shows I did were on at a time that she happened to be listening to the radio.
2: <laughs> but it's good. You need to be humbled, and your mom is great for that. And I love it.
0: I love it. I, I always joke that my mom was the wind on top of my wings. <laughs> but... but Because this is a public radio show, somebody emailed in and said, if you know how wings work, Mm -hmm. it's air moving
2: over the top Mm -hmm. of the wing. I did did know that, but it's also like, you know, just let him have the joke, you know? (laughs) But it's just like, oh, I'm so smart. Like, if you were so smart, you would have got the damn joke and moved along.
0: What is a joke that you can't figure out why it doesn't work because you think it's a good joke?
2: Um, I mean, if, if it doesn't work, it's not a good joke, really. But you
0: must have jokes that you're like, this is gonna, this is gonna kill. And then it just doesn't get the reaction you expect. I
2: mean, just anything that's real personal that has, like, too many references are just like, ha, 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 yeah, you guys know how my ex-wife is, too. Like, that don't work. <laughs> They're like, we never met her and you sound angry. <laughs>
0: That kind of comedy you're describing did work for a long time in American comedy clubs, right? That yeah. was a lot of the go-to. Yeah. Do you feel like the audiences are changing and the kind of material that is successful is changing a little bit?
2: A little bit. It ebbs and flows, you know? I think that more and more smart people are getting into comedy as it gets out of, like, comedy clubs. I think the, like, the little two-drink minimum comedy club chuckle hut thing that people we're like, I don't want to go to this, this seems stupid, this seems hacky, and now there's like just all these other avenues, these artsy shows, these other things, these theater shows like Funchamania, uh, that you can go to where you can just really find a comedian that, that suits your taste. I think just because comedy is so subjective and what's funny to one person isn't funny to the next, so it's just really about having all these avenues to find your audience. I think that's the biggest change and, and that's what I love about comedy so far uh it's ju it's just fun, I like it when when you're
0: doing a lot of t v stuff like when you're on the n b c show, does that cut into your stage time doing
2: stand up? Yeah, it does. I don't like it. It's like nobody told me that if I got good at telling jokes for like ten minutes that they would make me work for like fifteen hours a day, which is like the opposite of why I got into this game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Ron, our theme this week is adaptation, okay, which is. As you know, essential to human life on this planet. I didn't know
2: that until you told me,
0: but sure. I don't know how you're going to do it this game.
2: Okay. Over millions of years,
0: we have been evolving and adapting into the amazing, beautiful creatures that we are now, but some of our behaviors are straight up weird. And yet there is a reason why we evolved these behaviors. And so, Ron, we wanted to get your guess on why humans evolved to do certain things Then we're gonna compare your answers to what the real scientists who study human nature actually say.
2: Okay, well, you don't even have to do that because I know I'm gonna nail it. So let's just do it.
0: We even had the band write a sting for this.
3: Why, why? Tell me why it's human nature, why?
0: Livewire House Band. It's a good thing. All right, here we go, Ron Funches. Okay. What would you guess is the evolutionary function of goosebumps?
2: Ooh, of goosebumps. So that you don't, like, get too cold, so you know that what your temperature is, so you don't freeze to death. Is that a good one, or should I have made jokes first? Is this a joke thing? It's a, is this like Hollywood Squares, where I say a joke answer first? Or?
0: You get to do whatever you want. That's a pretty good guess. It's not the... Scientific reason.
2: Also, it was so that R.L. Stein could get work. (laughs) (laughs) I found it, guys. Yes.
0: I did not think you were going to get there, Ron, and you did. You nailed it. That's exactly the answer. Thank you. Scientists also believe that goosebumps are a remnant of thick hair that covered early humans, and then the reflex of hair raising up for humans was a way to appear bigger when we were kind of nervous or scared. Mm-hmm. Here's a fun fact. The act of getting goosebumps is technically called a piloerection.
2: Grow up! Also, what if I had said exactly that? <laughs> he knew exactly what goosebumps were for. He knew piloerection. Oh, I know piloerection. <laughs> All right. Ron Funches.
0: Why do human beings cry?
2: Oh, okay. Because the notebook is so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm guessing to cl- clean things, clean our eyelids and eye eyelashes, and our eyes. make sure we don't get dust and stuff in our eyes. If yes, is- kind of. Okay, just You're- say yes. Don't yes, say kind Yes, Ron Funches. Of. Thank you.
0: We are the only animals who cry, as far as scientists can tell. They believe that tears carry undesirable hormones and proteins. What about doves? That's just, that is just factually wrong. We only know though what it sounds like. We don't have any visuals on the situation.
2: They're so up, they're so high up there.
0: They think that tears carry undesirable hormones and proteins uh, that are produced They carry them out of our bodies, hormones that are produced during times of stress. Tears get rid of them, which is why you feel better after crying Mm. sometimes. Oh, I always
2: do. Yeah? A good cry? You got to. Don't be ashamed. You got to cry as a grown person, just let it out sometimes, and it's not a joke. This is just to let you know that it's okay. Ron Funches,
0: (laughs) why do human beings laugh?
2: Oh, because they near me.
0: <laughs> That's exactly what the scientist said. Ron funches everybody. Livewire gets support from Fully, who you may have known for some time as Ergo Depot. They have been Livewire supporters forever and ever, from way back in the day, and it's so exciting for us to get to partner with a Portland small business that makes really cool stuff that is going to improve your life. Uh, if you have a job, or if you do things that are intended towards being productive, and if you sometimes sit in a chair or at a desk while you are doing said things, you need to check out the full lineup of things that Fully sells. They sell furniture. That keeps you productive, but also keeps your body in motion. And when your body is activated and your brain is getting all that blood pumping to it, you are going to be more creative, more efficient. You're going to be more better at doing whatever your job is. I use a fully TikTok stool when I'm at my house and I'm recording things for Livewire. And I'll tell you, the thing is great. It's really changed my life. I also use a Jarvis sit-stand desk on stage when I'm doing Livewire and a Capisco stool, which is comfortable and supports me. Right now, Fully would like to thank Livewire listeners with a very cool deal 10% off products. So if you go to Fully.com slash Livewire and you use the code Live Summer, that's one word, Live Summer, you will get 10% off any purchase. Fully has outfitted all of our Livewire offices there on Mississippi Street in Portland, and uh, it is just it's been great for everybody. So if you want to find out just how cool Fully is, and if you want to get a screaming deal, 10% off, go to Fully.com slash LiveWire and use the promo code Summer during the month of June. All right, talk about having to adapt. Our musical guests this hour are a couple of sisters from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, who used to sing for fun as kids, and then they landed a contract with a big record company, and then they lost that contract with a big record company. But through it all... Kinship and love of music kept them going. Their new album, You Don't Own Me Anymore, was produced by Brandy carlisle and is out now. Please welcome the Secret Sisters to LiveWire.
3: Hey. Hey y'all. How's it going?
0: <laughs> All right, Secret Sisters, what are we gonna hear?
3: A song that we wrote about. The last fella that I allowed to break my heart and I think he got married and I was told it was to a very lovely girl um, and uh, I recently got married just about a year ago and I'm very happy and I don't care about that man anymore um, but I do remember that when we wrote this song I remember thinking I wish I could be a little fly on the wall when he hears it because he's gonna know who we're talking about um, and true. so it's called he's fine <laughs>
0: The Secret Sisters on Livewire.
3: Davey White Where is he tonight? He's sleeping with her in a Tennessee town And he's fine I think I lost my mind and my wasted time. I'm dreaming alone in a hotel bed that he's mine. I bought a gown to match his name, and kept my virtue just the same, so I could offer to my love a bride he could be proud of. I was sure I held his heart Until a Louisiana girl tore us apart I watched him as he turned away Into her arms where he stayed Davy White, where is he tonight? He's sleeping with her in a Tennessee town and he's fine I think I lost my mind and my wasted time. I'm dreaming alone in a hotel bed that is mine. Once my tears had all run out, I learned how to live without pieces left behind and told. Think I lost my mind and my wasted time. I'm dreaming alone in a hotel bed that he's mine. Till all the miles erase my pain. Till all. Christmas being with her in
0: a Tennessee town and he's fine Those are the Secret Sisters here on Livewire Well, 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 everyone. Here we are at the end of the show. Let's tell you who helped make it possible. Big thanks to our guests, Ron Funches, Walter Kern, and the Secret Sisters livewire is brought to you in part by alaska airlines and fully hotel accommodations generously provided by provenance hotels robin tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of livewire laura hatton is our producer and editor becky Fogle is our associate producer jason rouse is our announcer caitlin Kunkel wrote for this show special thanks this week to hannah withers our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Tucker, and Jonathan Newsom. Molly Pettit is our technical director. D. Neil Blake does our house sound and recording. Big thanks to Carlson Audio. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Laura Harden is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations manager. Additional funding provided by Work For Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire is made possible by the support of our members. Special thanks this week to Ann Wilson of Portland, Oregon. For more about our show, head over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
3: PRI Public Radio International.